Our text this evening is 1 Samuel chapter 25. I'm going to read just an excerpt from chapter 25, but you might want to leave it open to that chapter uh, as we refer to various portions of the text throughout the evening. I'm going to begin at verse 23. 1 Samuel 25, beginning at verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself on the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young man of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this gift, which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you all your days. And should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And it shall come about when the Lord shall do for my Lord according to all the good he has spoken concerning you and shall appoint you ruler over Israel, that this will not cause grief or troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord shall deal well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to me. And blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you. You have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. There is a common storyline which is evident in a number of books and television dramas and movies. It's not the only direction that a plot might take, but it's very popular. I've come to realize, however, that this theme was not created in Hollywood or on Broadway. It's apparent in stories as old as those recorded in the Bible. It's the simple storyline which revolves around the theme of vengeance. 
Typically, the story begins with some introduction of the hero, whose good traits are known from previous exposure to the audience, or whose good traits become known by way of some initial events in the story which serve to emphasize the wonderful qualities of the hero. Next, the story spends considerable time creating in the mind of the audience a horrendous image of the villain, the bad guy. Normally, the villain carries out some outrageous act of violence against kind, innocent victims like the hero or someone dearly beloved by the hero. And the intended result is that the audience should feel some extreme repulsion and hatred for the villain and begin to build a strong desire for the destruction of the evil criminal. The first classic example that comes to mind for me is the old television show, The Incredible Hulk, based on the comic book and now a character in more recent movies. Each week in the old television series, some wicked villain would secure our anger and disdain by abusing the innocent and mild-mannered character played by Bill Bixby. At the point in which the evil became unbearable, Bill Bixby's character exploded into the green giant known as the Incredible Hulk. And after demolishing the surrounding set, including a sound thrashing of the villain, the world seemed right once again. When you think about it, most action-adventure movies and a number of TV dramas are built on a very similar storyline. We're induced into feeling a morbid hatred for some wicked criminal and then treated to a great sense of catharsis and release when the hero violently crushes the object of our irrepressible anger. Now you can name all the heroes who are particularly good at this. You might think of people like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Harrison Ford, Chuck Norris, Sean Connery, Spider-Man, Iron Man, and a number of others. The basic frame of this theme appears in the biblical account found in 1 Samuel 25. As we often discover with the inspired text, however, the scripture does not faithfully follow the traditional storyline which Hollywood has so skillfully developed. Rather, the text of 1 Samuel 25 presents us with some twists in the plot which seem to rob us of our anticipated sense of justice and force us to rethink our conventional approaches to loving and hating heroes and villains. Our hero is David, son of Jesse. By chapter 25 of 1 Samuel, we're already filled with admiration and respect for this man after God's own heart. We know that David was secretly anointed by Samuel and chosen by God to become the second king of Israel. He's the humble servant who soothed King Saul's raging spirit by skillfully playing the harp for him. He's the youngest son of Jesse who struck down lions and bears while protecting his father's sheep. He's the young lad who killed the giant Philistine Goliath, thereby removing reproach from Israel. 
He's the mighty warrior who killed ten thousands among the enemy at the side of his king who killed only thousands of the enemy. He's the trusting and patient instrument of the Lord who twice rejected the temptation of killing the mad King Saul in order to secure his own rightful place on the throne of Israel. This is the great hero whom we encounter in 1 Samuel 25. Now the scoundrel in our story is a rich man described as the owner of 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. We're told that his property is in Carmel. The last time the scripture mentioned Carmel, it was in connection with King Saul having built a monument to himself just before God rejected him as king. Thus, the very location of this man's property recalls a scene of pride and self-centeredness. In verse 3 of chapter 25, this man is identified as harsh and evil. We're told that the man's name, Nabal, reveals his character. In verse 25, it is his wife, Abigail, who points out the meaning of this man's name as folly or fool. Back in verse 3, we're told that Nabal, this fool, is a Calebite. Seemingly, this refers to his lineage as a descendant of Caleb, one of the great heroes of the wilderness narratives. However, rather than Nabal was a Calebite, the consonantal text of the Hebrew passage can also be read, Nabal was like his heart. This creates an allusion to Psalm 14.1 and 53.1, which read, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's been suggested that this scribal sarcasm highlights the arrogant character of Nabal, who recognizes no authority beyond his own. Now the confrontation between David, our hero, and Nabal, the fool, is set during a sheep-shearing festival held by Nabal. David and his company of men had been living among Nabal's shepherds and treating them with respect and with kindness. Later in the story, one of Nabal's servants testifies to Abigail that David's men were not only good to them, but even served to protect them from harm. Wandering foreigners and plundering nomads often threaten danger to herdsmen and their cattle or sheep. Groups like David's who were friendly and refrained from harming shepherds could justifiably expect some form of tribute. In addition, the context of a sheep shearing festival customarily required donating goods to needy neighbors. Given these circumstances, it was natural for David to request some food and supplies from Nabal for himself and the company of men with him. David's request is characterized with humility and reverence. It's not intended to threaten Nabal or diminish his lavish resources of thousands of animals. David demonstrates respect for Nabal by referring to him as, to himself 
as Nabal's son. David also wishes Nabal well, as illustrated by the triple use of the term shalom in verse 6, which reads, peace to you, peace to your house, and peace to all you have. The narrator makes it very clear. David's request is justified and made in a completely courteous manner. Thus, David has every right to expect a positive response from Nabal. However, Nabal's response is fully the opposite of what the narrative has clearly anticipated should be appropriate and deserving. Nabal not only refuses David's request, but he insults David as well. He calls David a runaway slave. Nabal's self-centered ego is accentuated in verse 11, as the words I and my are actually repeated eight times in this single verse of text. Many of our English translations often drop one or two of these redundant terms from the sentence, which literally reads, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat, which I have slaughtered from my shearers, and shall I give it to men whom I do not know? David's passionate reaction to Nabal's insulting and egotistical rejection begins the anticipated venting of our desire to punish the wicked and arrogant Nabal who thinks he rules his universe. This is the climactic point in the story at which we as readers get to vicariously experience the power and satisfaction of crushing an evil, arrogant fool. David's intentions are clear along these lines. The triple use of shalom, which David expressed previously to bless Nabal with peace, is now replaced in verse 13 with a triple use of the term for sword. The verse reads, David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. Peace, peace, peace has turned to sword, sword, sword. David's anger is clear as he makes a vow, recorded in verse 22, in which David exclaims, May God do to the enemies of David and more, if by morning I leave of all who belong to him, even one who urinates against the wall. Pardon my King James. Normally I don't look to the King James Version for a literal translation, but in this case, it's one of the few versions which renders this phrase as graphically as the original language. It's been argued that the vulgar expression used as an idiom to indicate all males in Nabal's household may accurately reflect David's state of mind. It turns out that this phrase, urinate against the wall, 
occurs six times in the Old Testament. In every case, the phrase is used to indicate the destruction of an entire household as David intended to carry out against Nabal. Thus it appears, despite its vulgar terminology, this phrase is a way of saying that someone intends to kill an entire household. In fact, the phrase normally applies to wiping out a king's household and replacing it with a new royal dynasty. It's at this point in the story that the divine revelation takes a dramatic turn away from the familiar and satisfying classic Hollywood type storyline. But before we continue with the account in 1 Samuel 25, we need to experience a bit of a flashback in the larger context of David's life. Actually, it's more of a flash around. That is, we need to examine an event which is described just before chapter 25 and an event which is described just after chapter 25. This account in 1 Samuel 25 is surrounded in a type of literary envelope with two other events in David's life which clearly echo each other. Both 1 Samuel 24 and 1 Samuel 26 relate accounts of when David stumbled into clear opportunities to take King Saul's life, thereby ending the tedious chase in which Saul had engaged in his attempts to kill David. Now these opportunities would not only deliver David from Saul's death threats against him, but would make it possible for David to take the kingdom as he knew he was so destined by God's having anointed him through Samuel. In the first account, chapter 24, David and his men are hiding in the recesses of a cave into which Saul enters. The Hebrew text uses an idiom here, which means Saul went into the cave to go to the bathroom. Now there are a handful of daring versions which translate Saul went in to relieve himself. However, it seems ironic that many of the English versions which in chapter 25 were so careful to communicate the meaning of the text and avoid the more graphic phrase in this case, in chapter 24, do translate the idiom more literally using the vague English phrase, Saul went into the cave to cover his feet, leaving us to wonder what was wrong with the reigning monarch's feet. Now, I don't highlight these things because of some odd personal fixation on biblical references to men relieving themselves. Rather, the inspired narrator has given us a literary connection between this account and the one in chapter 25, in which David has threatened to destroy every male in Nabal's household who relieves himself against the wall. In the case of chapter 24, similar graphic terminology is used where David has opportunity to destroy Saul and remove his household from the kingship of Israel. 
On the other side of chapter 25, 1 Samuel 26 relates that David has a second opportunity in which he could take the life of King Saul. This time David and some of his men sneak into Saul's camp during the night and have a chance to kill Saul while he is sleeping. In both of these cases in which David could kill Saul, we have much more reason to expect that David should do so. Saul has already shown signs of madness. He ordered the slaughter of a whole group of priests. He has neglected the affairs of state in order to needlessly chase David all around the country. He appears obsessed with jealousy and rage aimed at killing David. And David knows that God has already rejected Saul and appointed David to replace Saul. Now in contrast to this, the desire to kill Nabal in chapter 25 does not seem to present nearly as much justification as the opportunity to kill Saul in the surrounding chapters. So why does David refuse to kill King Saul, even at the urging of his followers? In both cases, David explains, The Lord forbid that I should raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. David proclaims here the value of his king. He recognizes that Saul was chosen and anointed by God, and no one has authority to take the king's life except God himself. In the case of Nabal, in chapter 25, David was not dealing with his king, but rather David was confronted by a fool. Having clarified this important distinction, we can now return to our story in chapter 25. Recall David has been insulted, his legitimate request rejected by an arrogant, wealthy, and pompous fool named Nabal. The classic Hollywood storyline of vengeance has built up our disgust and animosity against this vile character, so we're anticipating a wonderful sense of satisfaction and release as David and his armed company destroy the entire male population associated with this villain. It's at this point in the story when we most desire satisfaction for our sense of justice that God turns the world upside down. God sends a convicting prophetic word and places authority back in God's hands where it rightly belongs. The voice of the prophet, the one who speaks for God, comes in the person of Abigail. Two key themes constitute the heart of her speech. They're both expressed in verses 26, 31, and 33. Both themes center on saving David from his intended acts of violence against Nabal. The first theme is blood guilt. Within Abigail's speech, this is described as shedding blood without cause. 
One writer describes blood guilt as going beyond the acceptable limits of self-defense and anticipating the Lord's justice. Blood guilt in this context is simply killing for revenge. The second theme is taking vengeance with one's own hand. Abigail's speech describes this as simply saving oneself. Even in the greater context of war, God seems to condemn this prideful attitude of saving oneself. In the instructions in Deuteronomy regarding war, God encourages the people not to be afraid because it is God who will save them and bring victory. In the book of Judges, Gideon is told to decrease the number of his troops for war lest credit be taken away from God when Israel claims, my own hand has delivered me. In relation to taking vengeance for oneself, Proverbs includes the instruction, do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. He will help you. It appears that taking vengeance by one's own hand usurps the authority of God. Abigail further communicates the truth that the intended violence will defile David's future as God's chosen leader of Israel. Such action would jeopardize his throne and pollute his kingdom. One author has written, through Abigail, the Lord saves David from a danger different from that in the cave with Saul, but nonetheless great. It consists in the possibility that David may take matters into his own hand and thus make himself master of his fate instead of letting it be guided by the Lord. Following Abigail's speech, David repents. And he blesses Abigail for keeping him from blood guilt and avenging himself by his own hand. Throughout her short prophetic speech, Abigail uses God's divine name, Yahweh, a total of seven times. This occurs in verses 26, 28, 29, 30, and 31. Our English translations often translate the name as Lord, using all capital letters. But this repeating, repeated sounding of God's name may have served to remind David of the spiritual dimension of his calling. One scholar writes, David's Yahwistic perspective has been refocused. Part of this refocusing involves expanding David's idea of value in relation to fellow humans. Not only is it true that no one has the authority to take the king's life except God, David also learns that only God has the authority to take the life of even a fool. For us, as contemporary readers of the text, our anticipated venting of anger and vengeance all over Nabal has been robbed from us and placed back into God's hands.
I doubt we have too much trouble refraining from actual blood guilt, but I must confess that I continually battle the temptation to take vengeance into my own hands. Sometimes it's as subtle as giving my wife the cold shoulder, wanting her to suffer through my silent treatment because she has neglected some need of mine which I feel she should have anticipated even without my expressing it. As you can imagine in such cases, I play the role of both the fool and the self-centered avenger. Sometimes it's a little more expressive, such as when I'm pushed to cursing with the, because of the inept and incompetent quality of service which we all so often encounter after waiting 15 hours on the phone for the next available customer representative who can't help us anyway. Most difficult are those times when I have clearly and intentionally been wronged or abused. And I feel justified in returning verbal or even physical violence against the offender. Now like David, I can easily dismiss such temptations when I'm confronted by someone like David's king, whom I consider worthy or superior or chosen by God and deserving of extra grace and respect. But also like David, I too easily give in to such temptations when I take a relationship for granted or encounter someone like David's fool who I don't consider worthy or chosen by God or deserving of any extra grace or respect. Abigail's prophetic speech not only reminds us to place our deliverance and trust back into God's hands, but it highlights for us the true value of kings and fools in God's realm. Only God has the authority to take vengeance on kings or fools. Our job is to grant that extra grace and respect to all our fellow humans, regardless of our view of their status, personality, or circumstance. Our call is to treat all others with courtesy and respect, acknowledging reverence for all life. We must seek to do so diligently and bring honor to God's kingdom. I had a friend in undergraduate school who used to preach that people are where it's at. B.J. Thomas wrote a song years ago with the lyrics, loving things and using people only leads to misery. But using things and loving people, that's the way it's got to be. David's experiences in 1 Samuel 24 and 25 and 26 serve to remind us and call us to love our neighbor no matter who they are. Jesus reflects this attitude with the exhortation to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. May the Spirit of the Lord so empower us 
to restrain from avenging ourselves by our own hands and empower us to return good in place of evil, regardless of who may affront us. Let's pray. Our Lord, keep us ever your humble servants, extending grace and respect to all those around us, and trusting you for our well-being and provision. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.